Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Cars are dangerous when they're being driven by humans. They're dangerous when they're being driven by robots that haven't been certified. I've been brake checked before really hard, and the car stopped. It came to a complete stop, like... Elon Musk really knows what he's doing, and I think people are just tripping and they're scared. That's a guy who got arrested for being in the backseat of his Tesla, which is against the law in California. He was in <laughs> rush hour traffic in the San Francisco Bay Area, like peak of rush hour, sitting in the back at the toll booth on one of the uh, tollways, and uh, somebody called the police, and the police pulled up to him. And then when the police uh, uh, went to arrest him, he climbed over into the front seat again, I guess to pull the car over or whatever, but anyway. Um, I don't know. I feel like they got to work that whole thing out. The The real advantage to a driverless car to me is I don't have to drive it. If I'm going to drive it, I'll drive it. I don't like the idea of sitting there having to pay it. And, and it's unrealistic to expect people to pay attention if you're not actually driving it. It just won't happen. Well, if I'm paying attention, why am I not driving it? Well, that's what I mean. It's it, not like it's painful to turn the steering wheel or anything. And if you're going to go with the, no, 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 it, it's better at it, You but you need to be ready to take over if it makes a mistake. People, that's unrealistic to expect mm-hmm. people to do that. You're going to start daydreaming or looking at your phone or whatever. You just are. Especially like, you know, the first time you get in your self-driving Tesla, the first time to work, okay, maybe you pay attention. Because you're time, terrified. The yes. second time you mostly pay attention. You know, two weeks in, you're spend, you're sound asleep or you spend the whole time, you know, sc- scrolling your phone or catching up on some work you needed to get done or something. Sure. Yeah. And why not? Well, because it's dangerous. Um, and if they're going to so this guy, I, I hear, I heard somewhere this guy's incorrigible. He's gotten busted a few times for it or something. Yeah. He, for this very same thing and, uh, kind of paraphrasing his stance, I don't believe there is a number of tickets that are going to get him in the driver's seat of his autopiloted car. <laughs> awesome. It's a brave stance, sir. So I'm imagining this scenario as I do this segment. I'm keeping this in the back of my head. Uh, hey, honey, what radio show is that you listen to? I listen to the one that sounds like a bad version of a community college economics class. That's what I'm trying to avoid here. Wow, that's an unkind review. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to avoid here, this whole inflation thing. Inflation rose at its fastest rate since September 2008. Well, we didn't, all, we didn't all become cannibals. Uh, you know, the next month in 2008, things settled back down and got under control. But it's a worry. And, uh, you know, with all the money being pumped out the door and so many things going up, uh, there's a concern that might inflation might actually be back. And I'll read a little bit from the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, which spent a lot of time focused on that today. Um, the Wall Street Journal is going to be on the test. <laughs> yes, I wouldn't be telling you if it wasn't important. I like when the teacher would say, no, it's not going to be a test. Everybody would be, I like I lay back. <laughs> Start staring at the ceiling again because I have no interest in learning anything. I only just. <laughs> oh boy. Um, I'll read from the Wall Street Journal opinion piece first. Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. This is from their editorial board, as Milton Friedman put it. For more than a year, the Fed has been pursuing expansionary policy for the ages. It has been keeping rates near zero and expanding its balance sheet to record levels with bond purchases in in an economy that has been growing fast for more than nine months. The prediction right now is for a second quarter growth of 11%. The danger is that expectations for higher inflation will rise and become embedded in business and consumer decisions. Transitory, that's what federal uh, 
uh, Fed Chair Powell is saying, this is just a transitory thing as we get back from the pandemic economy to the regular economy, just a short transition thing, which the Wall Street Journal is hoping is right. He's right. Transitory then becomes longer, and the Fed might have no choice but to end the party, perhaps more abruptly than it wants. The Fed would end the party by raising interest rates to try to cool off the economy, and you never know how far they might have to raise them to actually get that to happen. I was looking up just now, uh, McDonald's is announcing nationwide they're raising wages. So many different businesses are doing this. You raise wages, um, you got to raise the price of your food to cover the wages, so that's one more thing that goes up. And and we just, well, let me get to the New York Times article about it then, because it will get into the psychology a little bit. Yes, Joe. Well, I was just going to say, and remember, it's government policy that's forcing the rise in wages. You have to compete with the government now to hire someone. Oh, yeah. Well, you government can't leave, benefits. You can't leave that out. Inflation is here. What now, says Neil Irwin of the New York Times. Prices are rising fast in ways that seem temporary, yet this could change expectations in a way that are self-reinforcing. I must admit that I am new to this phenomenon of uh, inflation is so much psychological. I didn't realize until I did several deep dives on long podcasts and uh, articles how much of it is just we get in the mindset that prices are going up and then we all participate in it. The central fact of the American economy in mid-2021 is that demand for all sorts of goods and services has surged. But supplies are coming back slowly with the economy acting like a creaky machine that was turned off for a year and has some rusty parts. Higher prices and the other problems that result from an economy that reboots itself are frustrating, but they might be temporary. The longer the surges in prices continue, though, and the more parts of the economy that they encompass, the greater the chances that American psychology about prices and inflation could shift in ways to become self-sustaining. And that is very difficult to get out of. Get into a couple of uh, examples here. Now the genie's out of the bottle, says this MIT economist. If everybody else is raising prices, it becomes a lot easier for you to do that, too. Getting to the whole McDonald's example we just used a second ago. To understand the bewildering mix of forces at play, consider what's going on at your nearest used car lot. The price of used cars and trucks rose 10% in April. If you had a car that was worth $20,000 at the beginning of April and sold it, you missed out on two grand. Wow. That's unbelievable. Uh, it's its steepest year-over-year jump that they can remember ever happening. People in the car business says this doesn't have just one cause but several, each with different implications for the economy and for the policy, which is really the point of this New York Times article, is each example you've got of prices going up has multiple complicated things going on here. And so you don't know how it's going to turn out. Some involve the microeconomic decisions made by companies and consumers many months ago that are still rippling through the auto market. I'll give you some examples on the used car thing. Rental car companies reduced their fleets during the pandemic-induced collapse in travel and now are struggling to rebuild their inventories and therefore are not selling the used cars that in a normal market they would continually be unloading. Huh. A lot of cars that you get when you buy a used car, it was a rental car. They don't have any. New car sales fell last year during the pandemic, resulting in fewer trade-ins finding their way into the used car market. And now new car sales are being held back by a shortage of microchips. There isn't much government policy can do to fix those problems unless it involves a time machine. But government policies are part of the story. The combined $2,000 per person stimulus checks most Americans received in the early months of the year amounted to a healthy down payment for many families who wanted to get a car. Generous unemployment benefits are helping contain the number of delinquent delinquent auto loans, and in turn, the supplies of repossessed cars on the market are way down because people can afford to make their payment. Wow. I know. There's so many different angles to this. 
And that's just the car. And they, they, they give it examples with lumber and a bunch of other different things. There's so many things ha- happening at the same time. But the net result currently is prices are going up on practically everything. Boy, I hope the coming out of the COVID thing is most of this. Although the, the government can't pump trillions of dollars of printed money, borrowed money, into an economy without it having an effect. When, and, and not the good effect. When I was a kid, I would always hear grown-ups talking about inflation. Jerry Ford ran for president and lost against Jimmy Carter with a button that said, Win. W-I-N. Whip inflation now. Because inflation was such a big deal. My parents bought their first home when Jimmy Carter was president with an interest rate on their home of 18%. Yikes. That's what can happen when you have inflation. Well, oh and my as I God. recall, there was stagflation. The economy wasn't growing. It was inflation without growth. It was terrible. You know, we came out of it eventually, but it was fairly long and painful. I, I don't think that's probably coming. I don't think so either, but I'm hoping if there's enough talk in newspapers and talk radio and TV shows about the psychology of inflation, and we all realize that plays a role that maybe we won't all get sucked into it. Mm, Come on. But I doubt it. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. Right now, mailbag. You can email us, mailbag at armstrongandgetty.com. Do you have an opinion you want to share? Keep it short. Our freedom-loving quotes of the day this week, coming from Voltaire. Jack, of course, you know that's Francois-Marie Arouet, known by his nom de plume, Voltaire. French Enlightenment writer, historian, and philosopher, famed, famous for his wit. Okay. And his criticism of the Catholic famous Church. Famous for his wit. He was a witty son of a gun. I've read several uh, things uh, he wrote way back in the day. A couple of quotes. Is politics nothing other than the art of deliberate lying? (laughs) It's fairly straightforward. I'd say. And I mentioned this late in the show yesterday. Looking forward to today. Uh, This is so... uh, Remember this, folks. Remember this. A witty saying proves nothing. A witty saying. A moving slogan. A twist of words. A witty saying proves nothing. Well, yeah, you can often get cheers for it, but uh, on, oh, upon further reflection, people will decide, but what does that mean, or that's wrong? or I uh, often refer to it as greeting card rhetoric, sloganeering. So what? You strung together a phrase. Let's talk about the policy, how it will work, the pros, the cons, what will change in the wake of said policy. But, you know, that's why nobody wants me at their parties. Moving along to the correspondence proper, it's Dave writing, Dear Infrastructure Team, I've listened to you infrastructures for years, and I sincerely thank you from both my infrastructure. I especially appreciate you now that infrastructure, who I'd listened to since the 1990s, has passed. I tuned into the other radio infrastructures through the day, and you're the only one I like well enough to email my various infrastructures to. No one else these days combines infrastructure with infrastructure in such clever ways that you guys constantly manage to do. Consistently, I'm sorry. Many infrastructures, Dave. I appreciate it, Dave. Well, well done. Uh, we're tracking with you there. Nick writes, Joe, I don't know if you watched the Masters. Of course I watched the Masters. But an Asian won it. You would not believe the hate from the mostly white Georgia crowd in attendance. You're awesome. Great job. Congratulations, etc. So ugly. Nice job, Nick. Uh, unwoke, unwoke older woman writes, on the topic is uh, put Bill Gates away. 
Hey, fellas, did your parents ever say to either or both of you, if you had brains, you'd be dangerous? <laughs> no, my parents didn't tend to say that sort of thing, but others might have. Well, that's Bill Gates. The man is insane, but since he's a billionaire, it's okay. If a homeless per- person walking down the street were contacted by authorities and he said he had a way to cool the earth and then described Gates' idea, he'd probably be taken to a mental health facility for at least a 72-hour hold. That's what needs to happen to Gates and any weapons he owns taken away from him. We should play that uh, <laughs> because we did that at the very end of the show on Friday. Bill Gates has a plan. I don't know whether or not he gets to do it or not to blot out the sun to cool <laughs> off the earth for a while. Like to blot out the sun for the whole Earth. Was he stroking his white cat while he was discussing <laughs> that? Or well, my thing is, does he get to do that if he decides it's a good idea? Can anybody stop him? Well, surely that's against some sort of law, blotting out the sun. <laughs> if it's not, <laughs> I tell you what. How about we put the whole phony infrastructure thing on hold for like forty-eight hours? Uh, let's see. What else do we have? Uh, no name Ron writes. I was reading a little about the argument against voter ID laws and found this. 21 million eligible voters in the United States do not have a government issued ID, photo ID. But and for many, one. for many, these IDs are very difficult to secure. I don't believe that for a single second. Now, this but... issue should be over. People have fought and died for the right to vote. Voter ID laws prevent people from exercising this right. Then don't we also have to get rid of having an ID to buy a gun? 21 million people in the U.S. do not have government issued IDs. You just said that. And for many, these IDs are very difficult to secure. People have fought and died for our constitutional rights, including the right to bear arms. Buyer ID, buyer ID laws prevent people from exercising this Second Amendment right. Nice job. There's Ron. no controversy on that topic. It should be no. over. Seventy-some percent of people agree. So that one should be over. Yeah, and I want to talk about that a little bit more. Folks, we have to, those of us who do not think voter integrity and voting integrity is some sort of joke to be run roughshod over we need to make an offensive case for that not offensive like you know farting in an elevator but go on the offense and make the point that if people start to doubt the fidelity of the vote in this country we are doomed you could make the argument we need to lean way toward vote fidelity as opposed to everybody votes all the time we'll just mail out millions of ballots and anybody can return them anytime no ids no signatures anything otherwise you're disenfranchising people it's a specious argument and it's counterproductive it's dangerous and you know what we need to get from that to this transition music so we got this note from uh, brian in kansas city jack you lived in uh, the kansas city area for a number of years i did i recall um I lived not far away and spent uh, many a pleasant day in Kansas City, both with my wife and kids, and sometimes going to football games. But Brian writes, the metro of Kansas City has always leaned blue, as most big cities do, but uh, now apparently we're taking advice from California. We have homeless that seem to have surged and started a union, whatever the hell that means in this case, and created a tent city outside of City Hall and another one in the bar hopping area downtown. I believe I have hopped some of those bars myself. The mayor of Kansas City has now agreed to put all of these people in a hotel for at least 90 days. All right. Keeping in mind that a uh, appeals court ruling recently reinforced out in Cal Unicornia said that you can't run junkies and bums off the sidewalk or out of your parks unless you have offered every single one of them a bed. In fact, you just you have to have enough beds and shelters to house them all, or you can't enforce any of your laws, any of your anti-camping laws anyway. 
And then he goes on to say, the article goes on to say, how many more people are just one paycheck away from being in the same boat? And how vulnerable they are. And it's maddening. Instead of our schools teaching racism, they need to teach people how to balance a checkbook. The choices have consequences and live within their means. Rant over, I need more coffee. DCMK, don't California my Kansas. That's uh, Brian in Kansas City. And indeed, uh, I'm looking at the uh, the article here uh, on uh, the Fox affiliate, interestingly enough, in uh, KC. And it reminds me so much of a lot of the earlier coverage of the West Coast junkie bum crisis, um, you know, from five, ten years ago, in which the open-hearted, kind people were saying, well, it's just because of rising housing prices. And people have one medical problem, and they can't pay their bills, and they end up homeless. This naive unicorn riding, ridiculous crap. It ignores the fact that most of these people are junkies or just don't want to work. The people who had one medical problem or and couldn't afford their place or whatever, they're not shooting up in the park. No. They keep to themselves. They're quietly, desperately trying to get their lives restarted, and I am more than happy to help them through the proper channels. You people, you're, you're, well, I almost said you're stupid. Why would I be, why would I attack the, the victims in this case, which is the good people of Santa Rosa, California, of Kansas City, of, of, of Seattle and Portland and San Francisco are just trying to live their lives. Wake up, people. Armstrong and Getty. Amount of I hate to say it, it was kind of cool. I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown. I have Amen. All right, go, go. I'm ready. He is Armstrong and Getty. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. So a lot of courts and anything legal is being done online now. It's being done by Zoom. This is a judge talking to some of the people involved in this court case. Then we'll bring this fool in. Good morning, sir. What's your name? Nathaniel Saxon, sir. Your name's not but 3000, you yo-ho. Logging into my court with that as your screen name. What kind of idiot logs into court like that? What's your name again? Nathaniel Saxton, sir, but I don't believe that I typed anything like that in. Well, that's what it says. I You should. I'll put you in the waiting room. You can sit in limbo for a while and think about what you call yourself online. <laughs> Is the judge swinging down the purple drag? He talks a little slow. <laughs> And I'm so drunk. You with your screen name and me just hammered. Wow. You got to uh, make sure that your funny screen name for video games or poker night or whatever you're doing, you can't do it when you go to uh, show up for court or work or whatever else. Right. Especially for a judge with a coding habit. <laughs> Um, and he called him a yo-ho. What's a yo-ho? <laughs> Do you mean yoo-ho? Do you mean yay-ho? What are you, yahoo? What are you trying to say there? <laughs> Too much.
much cough syrup, Judge. <laughs> Use some judgment. Read the label. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um. Oh, Liz Cheney got booted out of the Republican Party. I don't know if that, or, or the Republican leadership. She still gets to be a House member and all that. But uh, I like this tweet that Tim Sandifer retweeted. You know there's a Democrat in the House when there are the biggest CPI jumps in a decade, inflation, gas shortages, attacks on Israel, and a border crisis, and the mainstream media is focused like a laser on the number three House Republican. Who in the hell even knew what the number three House Republican was until, you know, a couple of weeks ago? Or what they're supposed to do, yeah, or, or what the why role there is, is one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So no pretending kidding. like this That's is well a put. giant earthquake is just uh, whatever. Um, can you have more than 150 friends? We've talked about the Dunbar number over the years. It always seemed a little dumb to me. It's been around since 1993. This guy named Robin Dunbar, he's an anthropologist. He theorized that humans could have no more than about 150 meaningful relationships, that we are just our brains, our psychology was capped at about 150 meaningful relationships, which always seemed like an extraordinarily high number to me anyway. It's way more. I don't have 150 meaningful relationships. Maybe I'm uh, too much of an introvert or a jerk or whatever, but doesn't that seem like a lot of meaningful relationships? Oh, it's always struck me as, A, an extraordinary number, and B, something I'll never come close to. I don't think. I mean, depending on how you define, but nothing close to 150 friends. Are you kidding? It's all about how you define meaningful. Yeah, but, boy, I think even stretching meaningful, I can't get to 150. Like a coworker, I can identify by name, but I know nothing about them. Does that count? No, that's not a meaningful relationship. No way. I like the standard. We actually talked about this on our podcast yesterday. Go to armstrongandgetty.com if you don't hear uh, the little podcast we do after the show every day called One More Thing. But how about the standard of if you heard they were moving away, it would hurt. You hear your coworkers moving away that you you know, and I don't, I don't have any feeling about that whatsoever. It's like right. most of the, right. the, the reference papers or the term papers that – reference the the Dunbar's number, they say the number of people with whom one can maintain stable social relationships. I think that's a bridge before meaningful. Yeah, that's funny. This says meaningful, yeah. but it's stable social. So that'd I think be, that includes, that'd like, be like almost everybody you meet. Yeah, though. coworkers, acquaintances, like the, the, the sum total of your tribe kind of uh, was my understanding of the thinking. I have a stable social relationship with the guy who uh, does the maintenance on my lawnmower. I see him a couple of times a year. And, and you remember his name. And I remember his name. He yeah. knows my name. We say hello. We seem to like each other. You know, it strikes me that we're getting rather into depth analyzing this number, which is a load of crap. Stockholm University has published a paper now calling that number into question, finding that people could have far more friends if they put in the effort. We can learn thousands of digits of pi, for instance. If we engage with lots of people, then we will become better at having a relationship with lots of people, said this person who says that number is dumb. One of the, the main reason I bring this up is how Dunbar came to have this number that is I've heard discussed for the last 30 years. In his original research, Dr. Dunbar studied monkeys and apes and determined that the size of the neocortex, the part of the brain responsible for conscious thought, correlated with the size of groups that they lived among. The neocortex in humans is larger, so he just multiplied that and came up with the number 150. So he looked at monkeys and said, ah, eh, they got about 10 friends. And a human brain is about, I don't know, 15 times bigger. So I'm guessing it's 150 for people. Oh, my God. And everybody's been repeating that number forever. That's the way research often works. 
Anyways. We're going to follow the science. Dunbar number is crap, they claim. <laughs> It's amazing how many times I've heard that quoted through the yeah. years. Yeah. Well, it's like uh, the the general uh, view of Homo, uh, not Homo sapiens, um, Neanderthals, which you've pointed out is based on one idiot looking at a skull like 270 years ago and making completely idiotic conclusions. One racist idiot. Yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah. Add in a little racism just to spice things up. Yeah. Um,. But, okay, there you go. You can have more than 150 friends. Go, knock yourself out. I'm not going to. Michael, how about some transition music? So I was uh, debating t- for myself uh, whether to include Prince Harry in Wolkshevik's On the March. And I'm not gonna, even though he said some really stupid stuff about, well, first of all, he, he made some statements. He did an interview, a podcast the other day. And immediately... Half of the media went to listen to the spoiled little rich boy. And he was talking about, he couched the terms carefully, but he was talking about emotional abuse and, and like toxic parenting going back generations. And his decision that staying part of the royal family would continue that onto his children. Mm. And it was a, it was a very recognizable description of breaking the cycle of child abuse that anybody with any knowledge could sure. could recognize. And uh, because yeah, I mean, my God, th- th- that existence is so sick and unnatural. You know, being part of the royal family. But anyway, so immediately half the media goes so spoiled. It doesn't appreciate slandering the royal family. How dare he fall out as the royals? Blah blah. It's like, oh, my God, you people are so stupid, and your listeners and readers are so stupid. This guy said something smart and sensitive about loving his children. You go to your playbook of idiocy. On the other hand. The playbook of idiocy. I got that memorized. I don't need the little wrist thing that gives me the, the, the play call. No. Which play? No, I wrote that playbook. That's why you're so good in the fourth quarter. You idiot. Anyway, anyway, he went on to say, somehow they got into the topic of... um. The the paparazzi, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I don't want to start going sort of going down the First Amendment route because that's a huge subject and one in which I don't understand because I've only been here a short period of time. But you can find a loophole in anything. You blah, blah, blah. He said, I've got so much to say about the First Amendment as I sort of understand it, but it is bonkers. Okay. So some half-wit Brit says the First Amendment is bonkers. First of all, Harry, I like Ted Cruz's comment. He said, nice that you can say that. It's a good point. That's a good and one. other people piled on and made their, their Sink points. Sink their and ships! The right. Sink their ships! <laughs> oh, said one uh, Australian newspaper columnist, he's such a tiresome flog. Shut up, Harry. <laughs> That's fine. Hey, Harry, the First Amendment. To the extent that I understand it, which is pretty damn thoroughly, is one of the greatest gifts to mankind in the history of Homo sapiens. And if Britain was up its own butt over progressive policies that don't work, forbidding people from insulting each other, you'd adopt the First Amendment, lock, stock, and barrel, and be a better country for it. And if you'd ever like to discuss that on the Armstrong and Getty Show, I would be delighted to discuss that. And I won't ask about the Queen Mum one freaking time, because I don't care. It's the first time I had the thought that maybe I've fallen for it again. Uh, Prince Harry looks kind of like 
Regal. That's a funny thing to say. Um, uh, smart and important, but this part, part of because he's just a good looking guy. And so I kind of thought he was kind of smart and he might not be. He might be just like an average lummox. No, and I I believe he's a, a man of courage. He was a helicopter pilot in Afghanistan, right? Well, he could I mean, be a perfectly good dude, with honor. but he right. might not be very smart. Right, he might not be very good with ideas. I, just... I had that happen just the other night. There was a guy, and it's weird how we're built this way. A guy, and he was a, kind of a studly, looked like a young Russell Crowe dude, and he was dealing with this thing and everything like that. And it took me a while to figure out, oh, you're you're pretty dumb. You're not very, okay. You're incompetent. I was, okay, yeah. now I understand what's going on here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it happens. Well, blah, 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 transition music. It's time for Wokeshevics on the March. Cue the Chinese National Anthem. There's a tsunami of wokeness. 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 So much. We mentioned this earlier, but just briefly, in a twist worthy of Mark Twain himself, a St. John's University professor has been fired for reading a passage from one of the great anti-slavery novels ever. There's a tsunami of wokeness. By Mark Twain, Puddinhead Wilson, it happened to include the N-word. She's been fired for that. For reading one of the great tracts that helped end slavery and the point is and condemned slavery the point is the person in the book using the n-word is supposed to come off poorly i mean it's a criticism of them look at this sort of person right exactly even as movies rap songs etc use the term regularly and often in the movies it's to portray accurately the the ugliness of historical uh, you know happenings of, of slavery and racism and the rest of it but in a university class of all places you can't use that it's sickening moving along there's more wokesheviks on the march than just those the University of Oxford, as our universities lead the way toward only one thought is allowed. A tsunami of woke. Uh, yeah, we got that. <laughs> the University of Oxford is considering changes to the music curriculum, including alternate titles for courses after certain staff raised concerns about the complicity in white supremacy in the teaching of the subject. Not only do they think they shouldn't study the great composers anymore because they're white people, but there are some people on the staff of one of the great universities on earth who think they shouldn't study musical notation anymore, quarter notes and eighth notes and rests, because that was from the slave era and is of white European music and causes students of color great distress, except it only causes them distress if you make them so crazy they think it should. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. So this is important to realize this is coming from the New York freaking times, all right? This is not Fox News. This is not Armstrong and Getty. This is from the New York Times. They're liberals. The misleading numbers from the CDC. The CDC continues to treat outdoor transmission of corona as a serious risk, as a major risk, it says here. The CDC currently says that unvaccinated people should wear masks in all outdoor settings, if you're unvaccinated. Vaccinated people should wear them in large public venues. And summer camps should require children to wear masks virtually at all times. That's terrible. There is not a single documented COVID infection anywhere in the world from casual outdoor interactions such as walking past someone on a street or eating at a nearby table. Not one, according to the New York Times. Wow. 
all the millions and millions and millions of cases around the world, all the studies, all the contact track tracing, not one. And obviously, if you came up with 10 in the whole world, you'd still say, well, I'm not going to wear a mask because 10 people in the world caught it outside. But there's not one. There's not even a single one. And yet, Judy and I are outdoors in a park in the wind the other day, and there are all sorts of people wearing their mask outdoors. I just don't get it. People are ignorant. That's it. My uh, my son met another uh, kid, also named Henry, two Henrys, playing together. Uh, we met at the park, and I got there, and uh, Henry said when we left the house, should I bring a mask? I said, you better bring it, and um, got there, and I said to the mom, who I, I didn't know, this was a new uh, play date, and I said, where are you on the whole mask thing? I mean, we got masks. If you want us to wear them, she said, I said, I'm vaccinated. She said, I'm vaccinated. I said, well, do you want them to wear masks? She said, I don't care. And I said, we don't care. But there were other kids there with masks and there's not a single example of someone catching COVID that way. Anyway, every single one of those parents of the kids in masks voted for Biden. Guaranteed. So back Bet to a thousand bucks. Back to the New York Times thing, a misleading CDC number. We have a special edition of the newsletter on a misleading CDC statistic. When the CDC Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released new guidelines last month, these are their recent guidelines a year into the pandemic with all the knowledge we have a year in. When they released their new guidelines, they they announced that less than 10% of COVID-19 transmission was occurring outdoors. <laughs> Media organizations repeated the statistic. Of course they did, because that's what the media does. They don't look, you know, question, they don't question authority in any way. Wait a second, where are you coming up with those numbers or how much less than 10? <laughs> it quickly became a standard description of the frequency of outdoor transmission, but that number is almost certainly misleading. It appears to be based partly on a misclassification of some COVID transmission that actually took place in enclosed spaces, which is explained below in the article I won't get into. And even bigger issue is the extreme caution of the CDC, who picked a benchmark 10% so high that nobody could reasonably dispute it. The benchmark seems to be a huge exaggeration, says uh, Dr. So-and-so, virologist from uh, University of St. Andrews. In truth, the share of transmission that has occurred outdoors seems to be below 1% and likely below 0.1%, multiple epidemiologists said. And the rare outdoor transmission that has happened almost all seem to have been involved in crowded places or close conversation. The the casual, we're all outside and, you know, I run by you, you're riding a bike, we run by each other in the park. That has not happened one time on planet Earth that they know of. Right. Saying less than 10% of COVID transmission out occurs outdoors is like saying that shark, sharks attack fewer than 20,000 swimmers a year. The number is 150. But it's it's true, but it's right. also very deceiving. Yeah, the truth that deceives. How interesting. And the New York Times is the one pointing this out. They said less than 10%, so everybody's going with that. You know, fewer than 10% get the COVID outside. By less than 10%, we mean nobody, unless we all got together really close and, like, breathed in each other's faces all day long. <laughs> As if it was intentional. Yeah. God, that is so disappointing. I'd say. And that's the New York Times pointing that out. Yet there are still <sighs> kids wearing masks to play sports outside, etc. I swear it's a replacement for religion. And I'm not talking about all wearing masks uh, in all uh, situations, because uh, unlike some of you, I think it's actually uh, quite useful. But uh, the, just the, the virtue, it's not virtue signaling, it's tribal signaling. It is now a religious right. 
for some people to wear masks. I don't care if other people wear a mask, if that's what you choose to do. I am going to care if you make me wear a mask uh, when, when it's not necessary. And so Dr. Fauci yesterday was asked the question about, will we be wearing masks, you know, in the future? I think we have some of that. I don't know if we need to hear it or not, but... Um, yeah, well, we could. I don't remember what clip it is. But is the mask going to be something we have with us in a seasonal aspect? You know, that's quite possible. I think people have gotten used to the fact that wearing masks, clearly, if you look at the data, diminishes respiratory diseases. So it is conceivable that as we go on a year or two or more from now, that during certain seasonal periods, Mm -hmm. when you have respiratory-borne viruses like the flu, people might actually elect to wear masks to diminish the likelihood that you'll spread these respiratory-borne diseases. So, thirty to sixty thousand people die of the flu every flu season. I mm-hmm. could see the argument for somebody wearing a mask. You know what? I'm going. Uh, I'm going to the grocery store. It's flu season. I'm going to wear a mask. I think we'll see it. You've seen it for decades in Japan and in China, sure. your more densely populated Asian country. I could, I could see people doing that, and I might even do it myself. I don't know. I mean, like if I'm. I don't know. I'm trying to come up with an example, but if I'm going to be around a lot of people, a lot of randos, um, uh, why not throw on my mask? It's not that big a deal. I don't want to get the flu. It's not going to kill me, but I want to be sick. Um, but, uh, but, but there's a difference between that and if you're going to start mandating, if it's, it becomes a, you know, we're going to mandate this for people all the time and I'm oh, really making little kids that. wear it and everything. Yeah. yeah. Terrible. Terrible. Armstrong and Getty. 